0: This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Women Judges. NAWJ's mission is to promote the judicial role of protecting the rights of individuals under the rule of law through strong, committed, diverse judicial leadership, fairness and equality in the courts, and equal access to justice. To learn more about NAWJ, our programs, and how to participate as a member or support our mission, Please visit www.nawj.org.
1: Thank you for listening. Over the past year, we've seen how the pandemic has wrought havoc in communities throughout the world. The courts have been particularly vulnerable in this new paradigm. Some opened quickly and were aggressive in their use of technological innovations only to find that they needed to close down again when infection levels were back on the rise. Others never opened for court hearings because technology capabilities simply weren't in place. I'm Mimi Tsankov, and I'm hosting this four-part series on courts and the pandemic. I'm a national officer with the National Association of Immigration Judges and a vice president of publications with the National Association of Women Judges. Comments made here do not represent positions of the US Department of Justice. Today, we're going to dig deep on the technology front. Nearly one year into this pandemic, we'll ask whether technology is making life easier for those that work in and around the courts. We'll go to the technology experts and learn more about how they've had to pivot and address evolving technology needs. In our first segment in this four-part series, We looked at how the immigration courts were coping with the changes with no judicial remote access to hearings and a lack of transparency about how and when courts should either open or remain closed, the judges expressed grave concern for their safety and that of the stakeholders appearing before them. In our second segment, we sought out the stakeholders to better understand their challenges in interfacing with the immigration courts. Time and time again, practitioners and judges shared how difficult it's been to mesh their professional responsibilities with family life, with the vast majority of the pressure falling on women. Concerns involved how to interview clients safely complying with social distancing, while simultaneously serving as school monitor for students studying online from home. From sharing scarce workspace and limited bandwidth Some of the women with whom I spoke talked of being on the brink, trying to manage their responsibilities amid elderly parents, restless children, and increasingly complex job duties. In today's program, we'll hear from the creators of judicial technology tools and their users. We'll learn about what's working today and what's in the works for tomorrow. And to start, I went to Penny McLaughlin. She's a commissioner in San Diego Superior Court. She told me how she's been presiding over a very heavy family support court that has changed tremendously post-pandemic.
2: We deal with issues of poverty and finances. We set child support orders. We set new ones. We modify old ones. There's a lot of paper involved in our cases, And a lot of litigants. (laughs) And on any given day of pre-pandemic, we would have a courtroom full of people, but they would come in and out. Now we are all virtual and there's no meetings the day of court. So what has happened is we have a lot less agreements. When you have a packed calendar, you rely on a certain percentage of those cases never coming in because they reach agreement. When you have the convenience of appearing from your living room or your job site or the side of a road, we have people appearing um, in lots of different circumstances. Wherever they happen to be at nine o'clock on that morning is where they're appearing from. And some have babies in their arms or children with their online learning in the next room uh, yelling out questions or their technology went down. It's very different.
1: But even though there have been challenges, she said she really wanted to emphasize the benefits.
2: For our litigants, if you don't have a car, you may be taking two or three buses and a trolley to make it to court. It's very time consuming. A lot of them are paid by the hour, minimum wage jobs, where if they come to court, they now have to decide not only do they have to get up at an hour that may not be feasible if they were getting children to school before, Uh, but also it's the expense and they don't get paid for the hours they miss. So we didn't have as many people appearing. And if we really care about access to justice, we have to figure out how to incorporate this option in the future when public courts are, again, the norm.
1: I asked her how the technology was holding up at her court.
2: Some days we just laugh because the noise level or something in the background. One attorney one time sounded like a cartoon character. We couldn't figure out why, but every time he spoke. So there are moments with this technology where we all just have to take a breath and realize uh, it's not perfect. Uh, But these moments definitely lighten it up. And so we're working through it. Uh, But all of that takes time. We also, if someone doesn't appear, sometimes they can't get in. For some reason, their technology is just not working. When that happens, we have to take extra time to call the person by telephone, explain how to do it, and try to get them to appear. So all of these little things have taken so much more time that to finish the calendars that we used to do with ease has been a real challenge. So we are seeing a little bit of burnout where maybe it wasn't so prevalent before. Uh, There's days where people don't take it form they don't treat it as a formal court. And so we constantly have to remind them to be respectful of each other, not speak over each other. And I will tell you, uh, just knowing that you were going to interview me about this today, I asked my clerk what she thought of it and how it was going for her. And she just talked about how much more time consuming it was to take attendance. Sometimes 30 people have There's a couple of attorneys, two litigants. We have mostly pro pairs, but we could have, I'd say, five or six cases a session with attorneys. So you multiply out the number of people you're trying to coordinate to to appear at the same time uh, by the virtual court. So it's pretty difficult, and we end up getting started a little later. And she has to now add that job to all the jobs she used to have when a bailiff would be the person checking everyone in. The court reporters are remarkable. I have watched them physically lean forward to strain, to hear the words being said because of the background noise, the mumble, people speaking through masks. And that has been a, a lot of stress on our court reporters. And they're not looking at it like I am, like access to justice. They're looking at it like my job is to get a good record. And man, is it hard. You can take a simple matter that may take five minutes. With an interpreter, it's upwards of 20 minutes. Because not only does, we can't have simultaneous, because then you can't hear anything. The court reporter can't hear anything coming out. Even though they need a Spanish interpreter, they understand much of the English, a lot of them. And so everybody's speaking before the interpretation happens and the only person super confused is the person that doesn't speak Spanish and so it was a nightmare and our solution to this and everyone's had to find their own really is we're trying to do it by telephone now they could appear on the video but we call them on the phone and we have simultaneous interpretation with the interpreter on the other side of the courtroom so now the court reporter can still hear the English so yes we've had to work through quite a bit uh, but Like I said, overall, it has been incredible. I actually ran a video court before the pandemic, and we did that. But the big difference was we had a bailiff that came into a courtroom. There was the attorneys right there from the state agency. The interpreter was right next to the individuals, and it was myself who was on the camera. Uh, But we're dealing with it, and I have given feedback to my supervisor, our presiding judge, who really got us up and running after three weeks, of, I mean, three months of being closed. And she was great. And our court, the technology step was amazing. And they got all of the equipment together. And we were able to get these courts up and running. And I am hoping that there is a way to keep them going. Because I know, at least in my particular court with my colleagues, we have noticed that greater access to justice, that's a term we throw around all the time. And we talk about it As this concept that we're going to achieve, but to actually see it in action is a whole other thing.
1: So clearly there are challenges presented by holding virtual hearings with large groups scheduled for appearances. I wondered how technology was being employed at the appellate court level. To answer that, I went to Judge Ellen Gessmer. She was elected to the New York Civil Court in 2004 and to the New York Supreme Court in 2011. She was appointed to the Appellate Division First Department in February 2016. I asked her whether her appellate court had been using virtual technology before the pandemic and how things had changed since March 2020.
0: Really didn't use it at all. I mean, very occasionally we might have a conference call on the telephone, but that was really the extent of our so to speak, virtual technology. And then starting in May, we started hearing oral arguments on all of our cases on Skype. Uh, And the way that was done was that we had slightly shorter calendars than we used to have. We used to have calendars of about 25 cases per argument day. When we started using Skype, we went down to about 15 cases so that we could gradually get more accustomed to. And I think we generally didn't have argument on more than five a day so each of the judges would be in his or her home, um, on the computer system. And then each of the attorneys would check in with our courtroom clerk about a half an hour before argument began. And we heard the arguments on Skype. Skype was not a very friendly technology. It was, um, very awkward. It was hard to see all of the parties and all of the lawyers at any one time. It wasn't very flexible. But it was what the court system had, so we managed. And we were able to get through our arguments in May and June pretty proficiently with that. Um, Over the course of the summer, the court system changed from Skype to uh, Microsoft Teams. And we got training on that and began to hold our internal meetings on Teams over the summer so that we got accustomed to it. So that by the time the fall began, we had all of our arguments were on Teams. And that was that worked much better than Skype did. So I found that when I was, when I was on, our, on the bench, so to speak, <laughs> um, I could set it up as each argument began so that I could see all of the lawyers who were on that argument, plus my colleagues, all on the screen at one time, which I wasn't able to do in Skype. Um, so that made it a lot better and it also made it easier to coordinate asking questions among ourselves. But in order to accommodate the technology, we would usually preface our question with a sentence like, this is Justice Gasmer or counselor, I have a question, so that they would focus on us and so that we would become the focus of the virtual screen. We probably asked slightly fewer questions than we used to. um, And arguments also tended to go a little longer than they used to because the flow of it was just a little more difficult. But basically, it went very well. Some days there are um, odd circumstances. For example, my study, where I am now, is in an annex to my home, which is in a glass, which has a – it's like a greenhouse, um, which is a lovely place to work. But one day it started pouring right before arguments started. And when – we always do a check-in with the chief clerk before – about 10 minutes before argument starts – And she said to me, Justice Gesmer, it's much too noisy where you are because it was pouring and on the glass roof, it was, you know, clinking away. So I grabbed my computer and ran to another room um, upstairs from where my my desk is, but I left behind both my power cord and my notes. So (laughs) when we began argument, I sort of participated very moderately. (laughs) And then about I don't know, 45 minutes in, my computer started dying. And I realized I really had to go get the power cord. So I leapt up and we wear our robes when we are on the bench. So wearing my robe, which is quite long, I ran down the stairs hoping I wouldn't slip, got my power cord, ran back upstairs (laughs) and then plugged myself in and everything was fine. You know, nobody else knew. I think one judge noticed I was gone. He probably just assumed I'd, you know, gone to the bathroom or something. And because I did it all pretty fast, but it was, it was like this funny, it, it was like, it would have been a good scene for a, you know, pandemic sitcom. The other funny thing is that because I'm in this little ground floor glass room, Birds, and we've had so many, so much more bird life in New York City during the pandemic that I'll be sitting on the, I'll be on the bench, so to speak, and this, you know, a little bird will hop up to the window and sort of stare at me quizzically, and I stare, <laughs> it's very hard not to start laughing, which I try not to do because the lawyers might be insulted by that.
1: virtual hearings themselves can lead to fewer matters being completed than if being handled in person. This has led to some court backlogs, like at the immigration court, which we reported about in the first segment of this series. For those courts that were already backlogged, the pandemic has only served to worsen the problem. In some courts, civil jury trials have often been deprioritized as compared to criminal jury trials and as a result, business litigants are increasingly turning to alternative forms of dispute resolution due to the speed and flexibility it provides. I reached out to JAMS, a major international arbitration administration organization, and asked them how they've pivoted during the pandemic. I spoke to Richard Burke. He's executive director of JAMS Institute.
3: The executive director of the JAMS Institute role is uh, to lead the teaching and training arm of our organization. I'm also a member of the senior management team. I asked Mr. Burke to
1: explain JAMS strategy for technology use and how it's been evolving.
3: The first is to provide a client experience that's every bit as good in the virtual realm as it is in the live realm. Uh, we're known for having uh, very comfortable environments in which people can resolve sensitive disputes. We want to make sure that in the virtual environment, that's the same. We, uh, secondly, uh, like to accelerate client centricity. That is that we take great pride in understanding the client journey. And we do surveys. We do data mining Uh, We try to create more value for client through something that internally we call the voice of client initiative. It's something very important to us to make sure that uh, even in a uh, world where technology is uh, ever growing, that the client experience is paramount in our minds. Third, we are undergoing a digital transformation. We're creating processes to enable better client service. So online website enhancements, online case submittals, trying to make everything from the submission of documents to uh, payment for our services as easy and seamless as possible. The fourth aspect of this, and this is a, a huge one, it probably would be first in terms of priority, is security and secure access. We deal with sensitive information. We place a extraordinarily high value on protecting customer data. And fifth, uh, we have both a panel team, but we also, everybody from our newest front desk person, virtual front desk person to our CEO is called an associate. So we like to enhance associate remote services through collaboration software, and we re-engineer existing processes. So we use teams for projects, among other things. We have an internal proprietary software we call JamsWare. We use that for case intake. So uh, without waxing too long or poetic, I would say you know we have a, a substantial and multi-pronged strategy for technology use. and it evolves uh, on a daily basis based on what we learn from our clients our associates, and our panelists.
1: I asked him which technologies are available.
3: At Jams, we use every technological platform that our clients ask for. Currently, Zoom is the most requested platform, but we've held successful hearings on Microsoft Teams, Cisco's WebEx platform, BlueJeans, and other platforms as well. If a client asks for a particular platform for whatever reason, we're ready and if it's something brand new to us, we're committed to getting ready. So we are, uh, I will say, platform agnostic. We'll support whatever clients want.
4: Judge Frank Moss serves as a neutral based in New York. Well, as you said, I'm a neutral, which means I wear many hats. I serve as a mediator, as an arbitrator, and as a special master. Uh, I also conduct Title IX hearings for colleges, and I provide parties with confidential, neutral assessments about the strengths and weaknesses of their cases or prospective cases. Uh, I do that principally in New York State, although I've had cases around the country. Uh, I've had cases in Pennsylvania, in California, and in Florida, for example. I asked him how he'd been using remote
1: ADR technology pre-pandemic, and how that had changed post-pandemic. Well,
4: before the uh, pandemic set in, uh, I and the other neutrals at JAMS were using uh, remote video links uh, for a number of purposes. Uh, one of the common ones was uh, to secure the testimony of witnesses in arbitrations who for one reason or another couldn't come to the arbitration venue. That held true uh, mostly in international arbitrations, but certainly Uh, was true of other arbitrations as well. Uh, I also was using remote video technology at times when supervising depositions and as well in Title IX hearings where uh, there's a need to separate the complainant and the respondent and technology assists with that. And even before the pandemic, you would have circumstances, for example, where either the complainant or the respondent or a significant witness would be on a semester abroad program. So I might be holding uh, the session on New York time with a party or a witness who was in Beijing. I'm using remote video technology today in all the ways that I did before, but now more frequently. In arbitrations, rather than using it for the occasional witness, obviously the entire hearing will be uh, conducted through remote uh, technology. And whereas occasionally I'd have a party Uh, never an attorney, but occasionally a party appear remotely for mediations. My mediations now have gone uh, completely remote. When I sit as a special master, uh, I use video technology in circumstances where before the pandemic, either when I was on the bench or serving as a Jams neutral, I would ask Council and occasionally the parties to come in for a conference. So, if I thought previously it was important to sit down face to face to discuss 50 discovery issues, for example, I will now ask that we hold that through uh, remote technology. And where previously in Title IX hearings, um, some of the witnesses might testify remotely. Now, obviously, with students spread literally all around the world as colleges have shut down, um, all of those hearings occur remotely as well.
1: And next, we'll hear from Elizabeth White. She's a former Superior Court judge in California, in the county of Los Angeles, and presently a JAMS neutral. She's also president-elect of the National Association of Women Judges.
5: Thank you, Mimi. I joined JAMS in November, so I am new to JAMS. So um, pre-pandemic, I left the Superior Court, my physical courtroom with physical bodies and physical jurors and physical staff back in January. I did a short detour to work uh, what we call pro tem uh, to fill in for a court of appeal justice. And the pandemic hit just as I joined the court of appeal. So, interestingly enough, I was using technology at the court of appeal, um, including Zoom, conference calls, blue jeans. All of us were working from home. So, it was a wonderful segue. And the thing about technology is the more you do it, the more it becomes ingrained. You get muscle memory, so you know that you need to mute and unmute, although I think that's the famous phrase for 2020 is you're muted. Um, And everybody laughs because we all fall into the trap. I think probably the most difficult aspect of using Zoom in the context of mediations or arbitrations, if you're the host, is getting people in and out of breakout rooms. The nice thing about JAMS is you do have associates who are right there, and they'll stay with you the whole day if need be, because it's very, very distracting if you're in the middle of a very difficult negotiation to all of a sudden not be able to move people in and out of breakout rooms, or which would be cataclysmic, moving the plaintiff into the defense room when they don't get along.
1: As Judge White points out, it's critical that the technology function as seamlessly as possible, and this has been echoed by users of these virtual hearing technologies. There are evolving user needs which are becoming more and more sophisticated, and several technology companies have had a starring role in this equation. From developing products on the fly to better serve members of the government, business, and academic communities, to reforming their own structures to better handle the demand Companies like Microsoft and Zoom have adapted and evolved. So let's dive into the story behind the tech. Microsoft Teams is one of the leading technologies. And I reached out to Michael Dunn, Director of Quartz Business Programs at Microsoft, and asked him how the company has been adapting.
6: We developed a solution in the past several years, it's called Teams, and it's a part of the Office or M365 solution. It's the desktop for any professional. And using Teams, it started out as a meetings uh, solution between companies or government entities. And we've been working on to evolve it as a in-courtroom virtual hearing tool so that we enable courts and hearing boards to conduct their business Uh, and build feature sets to support their needs in facilitating their hearings or the many types of hearings that exist. Pandemic hit us. Um, The government customers and courts have been reaching out. Can we we deploy teams? Can we get licensing in place? And we did. But one of the things that we noticed right away was we needed to build court-specific feature sets um, that coincide with the unique situation of court hearings, meaning uh, we won't have the bailiff in the room anymore. You know, if there's a disturbance or we need to move things around, we need to develop tools for that. So Microsoft, we developed a V team, meaning a team of experts in Microsoft, product experts, subject matter expertise as well. And we began looking at the uh, teams itself, the architecture and the feature sets, and we began redesigning. At that same time, we began interviewing court systems around the world. And when I mean by around the world, it's Australia, uh, the UK court systems, Her Majesty's courts, um, state and federal court systems in the US, South America, Caribbean, you name it, we, we interviewed them and talked with them. We also began building a backlog. and what I mean by a backlog is a, a list of features that court systems need. Uh, and it could be a judge feature, it could be an in-courtroom clerk feature, or features that uh, enable the attorneys to manage not only their client but their the content and evidence that they share. So um, rather than knee-jerk reactions and building things and pushing it out there as soon as possible, we worked with the courts to build this backlog. Microsoft's very careful, and um, we, we bring the world's best security, so we wanted to ensure that we're bringing a good product. We began development in September, and we continued to develop. We developed a team of developers solely focused on the court system's feature sets, and um this fall and going into winter uh, we pushed out several capabilities um, number one was breakout rooms what we in the business we call um, uh, sidebars and uh, we enable those features so that the, the attorneys can have private conversations uninterrupted and keeping confidentially uh, confidential discussions uh captured. And then also the judge, should they need to talk to the attorneys or parties in a a private conversation, that breakout room or sidebars enabled as well. Uh, One thing we also saw was translation, uh, translation on the fly. And uh, we have two features for that. One is transcription that will run on the, the right side of the screen, and it will record the entire conversation of all parties. And then, and we also have closed captioning, where I like to put it in the bottom, but I've seen judges where they like to pin it at the top of the screen. And you can use that as translation. Whatever language you want to plug in, we've got a whole list of them. I'm not saying we have every one of them in the world, but we've got a rather large list and you turn on the closed captioning, it will translate on the fly. Now, other feature sets we have in development and we're testing and we meet with judges in courts to review those, Um, that's ongoing. And um, we're, we're looking at probably another release in another couple months. Um, we weren't a specialist in this area, so we had to, some catching up to do this summer and fall, but uh, we're committed to it. Uh, we assembled a, a global team development team to solely focus on this, and we're, we're not disbanding until we've solved the solution. The features we're building are bringing people into a lobby, meaning any a participant in the case comes into the lobby area first, where you're going to receive instructions from the court clerk and or the judge as well. And then we'll bring each party into the courtroom and each party will have their own breakout rooms assigned to them automatically as well, um, so that they can have their private conversations. That lobby experience is very important. It's also controlling. Does Anyone that's not invited to the meeting can't get into the, into the meeting, or I should say in the hearing itself. Uh, Also, if you have a disturbance in the court, uh, we enable tools so we can mute. We need to give the judge and the courtroom clerk the ability to mute parties. We also need to be able to turn off the camera. Um, We also need to be able to stay the the courtroom proceedings. If the judge goes into a sidebar conversation in chambers, the courtroom stays. No one talks. No one is nothing is recorded. It stands still. Um, Also, evidence presentation. Uh, many times, uh, I know in in all of my work, I've seen where you must present the evidence in advance for the judge to review. Um, we've been developing best practices. The judge or the court should present all evidence rather than another party dialing into the call presenting evidence. And then collaboration tools of how to review the evidence, present the evidence, markup, use a whiteboard to draw lines and circles. Um, we're working on those types of tools. Uh, another thing is you may have one or two or three or multiple defendants. We need to enable multiple defendants in a hearing, uh, it, perhaps even a trial. So where I'm going with this is we need to make sure that we're enabling all capabilities uh, for a trial. That's the most strenuous type of hearing that you need to conduct, um, Other hearings will use bits and parts and some of or maybe all of the feature sets that are there.
1: Another key player in the virtual hearing technology front is Zoom video communications. I reached out to Tracy Bryant. She's a state, local, and government sales manager at Zoom. I asked her how things were going at the company.
7: Obviously, during the pandemic, we've all been challenged with in-person meetings and um, interviews and events of all shapes and forms. And so Zoom uh, rose to the occasion and we provided licensing, uh, grew from 10 to 400 million plus users in the space of several months. It's been an exciting time for us. But obviously, we've had to evolve. Uh, or organization and the way that we use the technology in order to meet the demands and the requirements of our customers. So it's been a lot in a very short period of time, but we've made amazing strides partnering with organizations like the judicial um, segment uh, in order to make sure that we continue to meet the demands and requirements. Zoom for Government is a FedRAMP certified platform versus Zoom commercial, which is not. So currently, our FedRAMP certified platform is at IL2 Moderate. We will be uh, achieving our IL4 high security status, uh, essentially, in the next couple of months. Excited about that. And the differences, uh, again, outside of FedRAMP are that Zoom for Government is for U.S. persons only, for U.S. information only, and it's run by U.S. personnel only on U.S. data centers only. I will uh, honorably tell you and relay that the courts of all types um, have been a tremendous advocate and user of Zoom, probably our, our biggest sector in government um, between the U.S. courts, which does use the FedRAMP product versus Supreme Courts at the state level, administrative hearing courts, um, as well as criminal courts, um, both at the state and local level. Um, we were not stood up as an enterprise-wide or global solution, so we did have some challenges around security and privacy at the onset when the platform was tremendously utilized. Uh, we instituted a 90-day security and privacy plan, which we've met. Um, we uh, socialized that with CISA and other federal security organizations. We stood up a CISO council, uh, and we were able to meet the requirements and compliance um Requirements uh, that the courts are subject to. And so, um, just maintaining a high level of communication about those efforts and continuing to progress against different statutes as they are, uh, enforced and implemented. Um, we, I think we've hit our stride now and we're 100% compliant there. Uh, but I would say that was a significant challenge moving forward and, and wasn't without, um, a lot of, uh, thought and process and policy that was instituted as a result. We've added over 1,400 employees in 2020 here at Zoom. It's been a substantial upgrade and it was needed. Um, We've brought in a lot of wonderful people across multiple industries, and we're very excited about um, our opportunity to continue to meet demand and continue to grow and evolve. 90% of our feature updates do come directly from customer requests. And so, you know, we've had requests about getting more um, uh, specific around the use of our breakout rooms. Uh, Also, the waiting room uh, being modified to a court lobby, for example, and aligning with the court stenographer and reporters processes and being able to integrate uh, scheduling tools and reporting tools and evidence based um, tools in order to continue to develop and and evolve the workflow for the courts. We announced um, all of these features at Zoomtopia in October of 2020, and they're slated to be implemented in the first half of this year, which for us, our new new fiscal year begins February 1st of 2021 and goes through July of 2021. So we anticipate that by Zoomtopia, October of 2021, Um, we will have fully implemented uh, all of these features. We did just release in our latest software update um, live translation capabilities, as well as live transcription.
1: Yet as far as the technology has come, there are still inherent risks to its use. And we've heard security concerns raised repeatedly. To help make sense of it all, I reached out to Yolanda Smith. She's Chief Information Security Officer for Sweet Greens, and I asked her for tips about how best to secure our home environments as we share common space for business, government, and family use. We're
8: all in this work-from-home, hybrid, strange environment, and uh, I think it's especially important for folks that are part of the court system to understand the implications of the technologies that they use and really where there might be some, some, some security, little hiccups that you can, you can mitigate and really have a safe operating environment. Um, so first and foremost, I, I don't know if folks are aware, uh, we have, we're all connected with all these little weird IOT devices. I'm, I've got an Apple watch on right now, we've got our phones. We, we have Google Home and, and uh, Amazon Echo and all these, you know, constantly connected devices. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that these devices often have, you know, embedded microphones that are designed for continuous monitoring of the environment. They want to be able to instantly respond. So, and, so as you're talking and you say, hey Siri, automatically your, your phone's going to light up and expect to, to hear you, you know, make a request. When it comes to where you're working as a, as a judge or as part of the court system, that's actually probably something that you want to um, remove from your operating environment to make sure that you don't have these devices that are recording your statements and going out to a server controlled by Apple or controlled by Google. Um, So what I recommend is if you are able to, go ahead and take those devices out of your office or of whatever area you're working in. Um, If you're not able to physically remove them, um, you might wanna move to an area where they are out of earshot. So if you're able to um, uh, close the door and separate yourself from them, That's definitely going to put you in a better position to ensure that those devices aren't able to to hear what you're having to say. Additionally, we're seeing, of course, that ransomware is a real risk for the court system. Now, just the the 10 second uh, primer of what ransomware is, essentially what ransomware is, is a type of malicious software that will... Uh, go onto your devices and uh, encrypt everything, and basically, as the name implies, ask you or force you to pay a ransom in order to regain access to it. Where this becomes a real risk for the court systems is that if you're trying to, you know, get through a proceeding or you're trying to abide by a timeline, having to then deal with a ransom uh, really, really can complicate matters and will make it a, a much harder challenge to abide by that timeline. Now, ransomware actually propagates the best and the most effectively through email, um, phishing emails to be specific. Um, So as you are start, especially now that you're working from home, as you're starting to get an influx of email, you just wanna be really careful and be really considerate about who that email is coming from and also why that email is coming in. You can always take the extra step and reach out to that person through other means. So if you have their phone number, call them on the phone and say, hey, did you mean to send me this? Or if if you are unsure about it, send them a separate email that says, hey, did you mean to send me this? This this this. This this does not seem like it was intentional. Um, You always, always, always before you download or click on anything, you really just want to make sure that you are not sending anything that is uh, sensitive in nature. And by that, I mean, your passwords, your credit card numbers, your social security number—those types of things—and uh, and you want to make sure that if if you are going to do that, validate before. Do not just click on the link and just you know start typing things in. Another way that you can take to actually um, guard against this risk is to enable what's called multi-factor authentication on both your personal and your professional accounts what multi-factor authentication provides is is a second way to validate that you are who you say you are so the way that that typically occurs is that for whatever email or product or service that you've signed up for you will get a secondary request on your phone or through an app or through um, the the service provider to say, here, type in this four-digit code to let us know that this is actually you making this request. I always, always, always recommend, especially for your banking, and of course, if you're in the court system, that you enable multi-factor authentication, and your IT department for your court system should be able to help you with that. Mm -hmm. Finally, especially since we're all working from home and learning from home, I think it's super important to consider network segmentation. Now, I know that sounds Super technical and and difficult to do, but I promise it's not literally what you have to do. Go into your home router. There should be a a web page that is associated with your home router. And on that web page, there's most likely going to be a, a menu that says segment the network. And what you can choose to do with that is... Break out your network into different zones. You should have one zone for just your court and just your office and just your professional proceedings. You should also have a network, especially if you have kids or younger people in in the home, have a separate network for them. So that way, if they do download something and it it is um, uh, it ends up being malicious or suspicious, it can't jump from that network that they're on to your network and then, you know, take you down as well. And, and then of course, if you do have guests in the home, if you do have anyone that might be uh, coming and going, you should also think about having a separate guest network just for those individuals. And then maybe going full circle and tying it back, put all those IoT devices—your Apple Watch, your you know your phone, your refrigerator if you have it—put all those devices on your guest network so that way you're not letting your your uh, your network for your court proceedings be interfered with what by those uh, those separate iot devices um, those are the real quick tricks that i can recommend um, that will put you in a much safer spot as you are working from home and as you are dealing with technology on a more regular basis um so i want to say thanks for having me again
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please visit our website at www.nawj.org or our podcast
1: webpage at www.nawj.podbean.com.